doctor moaned and stirred slightly. Then he began to thrash about in spasms of panic. The TARDIS was surrounded by a host of colossal rats, their teeth squeaking against the frosted glass window panes, and their claws tearing at the creaking woodwork of the battered police box. The wretched machine was completely out of control, and nothing the doctor could do would make it respond. It had drifted too close to the edge of a rotating black hole, and been pitched and tossed like a cork in a typhoon, hurling the doctor against the controls. His head raging with pain, he struggled to activate the stabilizers, as the voracious rats gnawed hungrily at the windows, fighting to get at him. Just as they seemed to be on the point of breaking in, a huge black cat, its fur on end and its claws gleaming viciously, sprang out from the TARDIS's control assembly, spitting and snarling, and devoured all the rats in an instant. Then, purring contentedly, it stretched out on the doctor's chest and went to sleep. The doctor lay on the floor of the TARDIS, struggling for breath beneath the heavy, furry body pressing against his face. Off! Off, Grimalkin! Off! he panted, grabbing the warm fur in both hands and trying to fling the enormous creature aside. <laughs> Welcome to Doctor Who on Target. The podcast where we discuss the target range of classic Doctor Who novelizations from the 1970s and 80s. Those long ago days where, if you missed Doctor Who on TV, you missed it forever. Unless, of course, you bought the Target novelisation. So, join us. Jump aboard the TARDIS. Set the time rotor for late 20th century Earth. And, with a wheezing, groaning sound, we'll discuss Doctor Who on Target. Welcome to Doctor Who on Target. This is Greg in Swansea. And this is David in Chelmsford. Oh, fabulous. And David, I'm going to ask you if you would introduce this one because I got a feeling you you might, well, you quite like this one. Yeah, absolutely right. This week we will be looking at Doctor Who and the Sontaran Experiment by Ian Martyr, which apparently was first published in November 1978 and I do remember the book coming out and being very excited by it and uh, yes it it's extremely good did you did you see it thinking of the tv series for a moment mm. did, did you see it on first transmission I did oh. I did and, and it's quite amusing now to think that most Doctor Who stories that we see in New Who are this sort of 45, 50 minute length. And yet, when this story first came out, it was very much the poor relation of the season because it was almost like a filler amongst a lot of other good stuff that happened in Tom Baker's first season. But of course, course, it's actually um, a bit of a template for modern Doctor Who in that it's a very tight, compact, fairly simple story. And perhaps was ahead of its time for those reasons. 
Well, that's really interesting, actually, because I've always, in my mind, I've always paired it with Genesis of the Daleks, I feel. Mm. Is it, does it precede it or come off? I think it precedes it. Precedes, it precedes it. Whoops, sorry. I don't know what you'd call it. It's a trilogy in four parts. I don't know. But you've got <laughs> Ark in Space. Well, there's aside from Robot, which is the Barry Letts produced story that season, everything else links up. Yeah. So yeah. perhaps that's another link to modern Who, except in this particular scenario, the sort of art, the overarching plotline actually makes a bit of sense, unlike yeah. a new Who one. Yeah, but, um, yes. yes, you've got Ark in Space, which is the first on set on the Nerva Beacon. Then they leave the Nerva Beacon, go down to Earth, which is Sontar and Experiment. They're intercepted by the Time Lords in Genesis of the Daleks. They have that adventure, and then they're returned via the time ring back to the Nerva Beacon, which has moved on in time. Right. And that's when they encounter the Cybermen. So, yes, there were, you know, there are four stories there that are all linked, and this is um, very much um, an integral part of, of that story arc. Whilst at the same time being a self-contained, very compact story. That's really interesting because this this was originally written for the TV along with... Wait, what was it not written by... It was, it was written by Bob Baker and Dave Martin. And right. I believe that we mentioned them last podcast because they also wrote Claws of Axos, which That's, we discussed not yeah. so long ago. Yes, yeah. Uh, but so it was... They haven't done an awful lot. This is still very early for them. They are a couple of years away from creating K9 still. Yes, yeah. And uh, they, they, of course, return to the Sontarans later when they write, um, is it Invasion of Time? The Invasion of Time, yes. The later Tom Baker Sontaran story. Yeah. So they become increasingly prolific, but... Claws of Axos aside, I'd be, I know my knowledge is patchy, but I'd be hard pushed to just reel off any other John Pertwee sort of stories that they wrote. No, I'm no. sure there are some, and I'm sure it's my memory failing me. Yeah, I can't, uh, I can't think offhand, but I do know that... Stuff from them, very early stuff. It, it, yeah, it's yeah. Because at the time of the first transmission, of course, um, the concept of the Sontarans, which was a Robin, sorry, which is a Robert Holmes yes. creation with links. Yeah, they bring the same actor back to play the main villain in Sontaran Experiment, and uh, the link, of course, is Sarah Jane, who instantly recognises the race, if not the particular warrior. Yes, they're dealing with. And so they're they're yeah. a pretty new concept, whereas. Now in New Who, they've become almost comedy sidekicks. Oh, they're a very Just different Just to say beast. that I dislike Strax, I, I do like Strax, I think he's great. Yeah. But he's not a Sontar in, in this absolutely ruthless, mechanical, scientific, just plain nasty sense, which yeah. I think Ian Martyr expands particularly well in his writing of this book well we we, we we're going to get on to that in a moment just to uh because it's interesting you you said the word filler it's a two-parter as, as you've mentioned 
unusually in those days, a two-parter. What was just a, a small filler, wasn't it, in between the two the two big stories? But mm. so this is what Ian Martyr has been presented with. He, he's chosen to do this one, which there isn't a lot of story, is there? So not what, on television, no, no. So what did you think? Because we, I think we we've both just listened to the new um, BBC audio version as well. They've just released, um, read by John Culshaw. Mm. Um, so taking the, the novelisation and that into account, what 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 did what do you feel about the novelisation by well, Ian Martyr? Ian Martyr's writing, yeah. Rather than well, he flush, he um, fills the story out a lot. Yeah. puts a lot of additional detail in yeah. his writing is very imaginative and engaging he uses some wonderful descriptions he uses some wonderful referencing to make the story come alive he also changes things slightly he, he puts a completely um actually one of the points that his writing is at its strongest and this, unfortunately, is at the end of the book, so we're probably talking about it totally out of order. But it's the fight scene. He takes... Ah. He, he embellishes, I think, is the word I'm yeah. struggling for. He embellishes both the beginning, in which the TARDIS appears, rather than the transmat beam or whatever comes down from the arc in space. Yes. He, he keeps the TARDIS in the story, and at the end, um, the... Um, the battle is a bit more protracted than it was on television and appears to have had something of an unhappy outcome and uh, the the remaining spacemen and, and Sarah Jane and I guess Harry are all sort of facing up to life after the Doctor when he suddenly reappears having been miraculously saved and uh, that the, his that whole sequence with the fall and, and the saving is entirely in martyr's creation i don't remember it happening on the telly at all well I, I yeah that's interesting because i i've got in my notes that um i think approximately 95 percent of this novel didn't actually happen on the on right. the tv screen i i mean i, I might be exaggerating there but I, yeah, the plot is a group of spacemen get tortured doctor rescues them everyone lives happily ever after that's 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 kind of the plot although I do think, as I say, I said it a little while ago, I do think Ian Martyr's writing is particularly strong yeah. in conveying the brutality of the the Sontarans, or at least their blinkered dedication to duty. And Lynx is a... Sorry, not Lynx, but Lynx is, but um, Steyer is a very nasty piece of work. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. He, he's... Um... Ian Martyr's leaves nothing to the imagination about what a, an awful creature he is he's, he's um, ruthless absolutely ruthless and this is what um, because you, you, you before I think you started reading and listening to this before me I, I re of course I read the target novelisation when it first came out which I think your mm. research did you say 78 is it 78 November 78 apparently that came out so right. when I was about 10 years old yeah I think I must I was born in 67 so I that must have been probably the period in which I was reading target books most voraciously uh, me and too buying them. yeah and buying them 
as well. Me too. So, yeah. Yeah. Any new one that came out, I had to have. Yeah. Now, <laughs> well, no, absolutely. I, I, I was exactly the same. It must have been the same period for me, where you know it was a sort of voracious waiting for them back and forth. W. Yeah. Smith, John Menzies, all the we assume them. Yeah. We yeah. Assume that the very weekend that they got into the house. Oh, that, that, that's it. They were so fabulous. <laughs> but I remember this because I loved the story, I loved the cover, but I, I'd completely forgotten that the novelisation was by Ian Martyr and I don't have any memory of being particularly... I, well, or particularly struck by it at the time. It's and funny I'm, you should say that because he... I think this. I think I'm right in saying this is only his second novel. Right. And his first one being Ark in Space. And, of course, the link there is that he was in both televised stories. Of course, and yes. Even as, a, even as a youngster, even as a nine or ten-year-old, I was aware that the author of the book had actually been in the television show. Oh, were you? Were so you? I, I did actually make that connection. I'm not sure what put me on to it. I must have recognised the name because there were no videos or DVDs or downloads or no. stores or whatever. Would Doctor Who magazine have been... I, don't, be I don't think I was reading it. I just mm. think that because I used to consume all things Doctor Who in my childhood, yeah. probably just learnt all the names. You know? Yeah, yeah, that, that's probably it. Um, because I, I remember whenever... I was I used very to... proud of myself for actually knowing this factoid. Yeah. I was very proud of myself for knowing oh, that. Oh, well, but this is the thing. I mean, Doctor Who was such a rare thing in those days, apart from when the TV series was shown. Mm. If, if any feature or article was in a newspaper or magazine, it just mm. shot out from the page because... Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You, you, there was nothing in comparison to the amount of material there is nowadays. It, the, I mean, the... the I don't I don't want to digress but one of the the glue that sort of held Doctor Who together for me in my childhood was called the Doctor Who monster book. Oh, I don't know yeah. if you remember that. I do, I do, yeah. And that sort of gave you a chronology of all the doctors, the monsters, when they'd appeared, how many times they'd appeared. Yeah. I think Terence Dix wrote the text for it and the illustrations were by Chris Achilles. Yes. And it was a fantastic reference. Yeah, yeah. The making of Doctor Who as well was the... Uh... Yes, 1970... Well, that originally came out, I think, in 72. Oh, yeah. And it was revised in 76 because it originally came out with a... The cover was a shot from the Sea Devils. That's right. I didn't have that when that was too early no, I for me. Yeah. That was too early for me as well. But I certainly had the... The, the Tom Baker face on the target. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's the one I had, which was the fabulous, iconic target cover, wasn't oh, it? Of course, yeah. yeah. And again, that's a Chris Achilles picture. Yeah. So, uh, so we, we've, yes. we've got this. You're aware that it's written by Ian Marza. I wasn't at the time. Mm. I just knew it. Now, hearing this again and, and seeing the words again, it struck me, um, what... I mean, this this is named at eleven year olds, is it? It's quite. It's brilliant. The yeah. the writing is brilliant, it and is. the concepts, because at, sort of at the low end, you've got Harry describe Steyer as Humpty Dumpty, which I think most children <laughs> would understand. Yeah, and, that's fine. You know, 
and you've got these wonderful the the other terms in which he describes him as the golem yes yeah but that's not golem as in lord of the rings golem no no it's the jewish sort of monster man-made monster yes that i don't know if anyone's watching um ripper street at the moment but there's a creature called the Whitechapel golem on the loose at the moment so the oh. concept is 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 still out there this um this this creature created by magic yeah so so that was a that was a bit beyond me yeah. my, my my son and his that reference my son and his partner actually went to um prague this year and they visited where the the, the golem is supposed to reside it's it's a right. i think it's a three thousand year old jewish graveyard in the middle right of yes he is of jewish invention yes yes and he's actually there in a tower which is i mean if he is i, I don't know but that that is it's supposed to be that is the place where he resides and it, they can bring him back to life can't they for mm -hmm. with magic yeah. as you say uh, yes no he is they they can yes he's created through magic yeah and but, I, as I say, Ian Martyr's descriptions are just so varied, and they go all the way across that scale from from sort of myth to nursery rhyme. That's but also some yeah. of the terms in which he describes Star are just brilliant. Oh, they he describes are. Describes him as having stentorian breathing, oh, face like uh, pumice stone. Yeah. Now I had a pumice stone as a child. I yeah. resented it, but I definitely had one. <laughs> I knew what pumice stone was. Yeah. Volcanic rock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sarah describes him as having a shriveled tortoise face. Ah, oh, they fabulous. He's described as having hoggish nostrils dilating. I've got these ones written down. These are cracking. These these descriptions of oh, the monsters. They they are absolutely fabulous. And and I mean, you've just said it, but you he doesn't rest on having one description. Whereas Terence Dicks no, no. might sort of say. How do I describe this person? Right, this is the description, and he'll just reuse it. Yes. This. Yes. What does he, he do? It's so inventive. Puts out a, a number of. He keeps the description fresh, and and because I I knew full well what a tortoise looked like, and if you really think about, I suppose he, I suppose the Sontaran does look slightly tortoise-like, especially around the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. He, you know, he does have that appearance. He does look like a pumice stone, especially the one. From my childhood, which was, I suppose, all of them are sort of curved. Yes. Side. Yeah. He does look like a stone. He does look. <laughs> and of course, golems are made of stone anyway, aren't they? Yeah, of course. Being brought alive. Yeah. So of course. Dumpty's made of fragile egg, but I... we still understand the shape of the egg and and how, you know, I think, it it almost Sontaran when he's got his collar on, he almost. Looks like an egg sitting in an egg cup. He <laughs> do you know that's I've never <laughs> I've never thought of that before, but he, he does actually, yeah. Somewhat, somewhat tough and up to crack. Isn't yeah, he? yes, yeah. But that's what I love. You you pointed out, and I will say I didn't think of this actually, but he he puts in descriptions ranging from ones which would be understood by the younger children to mm. these quite intellectual and, and knowledgeable references like the golem. So. He he puts he puts there are I mean I've noted quite a few mm. of the phrases he's he's used for instance in the fight yeah the doctor the doctor's stance he he's described as um, 
being like an old-fashioned pugilist. Oh, yes. Now, yeah. as a child, I wouldn't understand what that was, but there's there's great nobility in that description. It's sort of yeah. Marcus of Queensbury rules versus a monster. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Basically, and of course the Doctor does cheat a little bit because he inebriates Star during the fight. He, put, yeah. he slips a bit of scotch yeah. into, into his flask and it's quite... him to to put him off balance so yeah. it's not exactly queensbury rules but uh i, I imagine it, it, it's, it's it's good imaginative stuff That's it is I'm... it is and i imagine it might have been a tactic which would have been used in in, in the time of the queensbury rules actually but uh, <laughs> but it's quite interesting is it because the doctor says i'm not going to cheat with the sonic screwdriver but then oh, he, he says yes. He says he says that's against the Geneva Convention. That's right. Yeah, but then um, <laughs> Sarah tries to give it to him, and, and he refuses it. Yeah, as, yeah. But, but you know, and then he uses his own hip flask to <laughs> gain advantage. But then Steyer doesn't exactly play by the rules either. No, so, no, no. And he does need to be fought and defeated. So yeah, I think we can forgive the Doctor for being slightly underhand there yeah i think so i think so there, there is a little bit of um a nice little bit of humor in there um. there's a there's a bit there, there's actually a bit where um is it terillium the metal it is yeah terillium the, the um the spacemen are being tormented trying to crush the rib cage yeah of their traitorous colleague and there's a, a part where steyer i think he grabs the terillium bar that they're holding and sort of twirls it round and and somehow the doctor forces the the thing to fall on his foot <laughs> which is which is quite a humorous sequence because because he's described as having an elephant an elephantine boot yeah <laughs> and that sort of reminded me of a really unacceptable in in the modern age sort of umbrella stand you know made of oh, elephant oh yes of course you just couldn't yeah. have that now no and, uh, no Thought, oh, what a, what, again, a marvellous description. He's, he's, you know, I, I understand what an elephant's foot looks like. You know, it's, yeah. it's good. It's all, it's all imaginative. Yeah. It, it, it is. It, it's, it's so well written. It, it's beautifully written. It's, uh, it, it's. Sometimes I thought it could be even sort of overwrought, if you like. You know, so. Many, I mean, there's adjective after adjective flowing mm. and flowing, and it seems that his imagination is fabulous because he's had the space to expand this this story, but yeah. he's gone. You know, it it can be overkill sometimes. Do you feel that or or, or not? I felt the only point that I felt that is I felt that the opening description was quite indulgent at times. It, yeah, it was the a beautiful, very, huh? very start of the book. Yeah, yeah. The, the maybe sounds... that was. Yes, there, there's a big, big, big description of the planet at the beginning, but then you know, it takes Charles Dickens a while to introduce a character. <laughs> it, so, does, it does. It so, does. It does. And we, we, we're not knocking him. No. No. So, Maybe I'm being unfair. I well, I, I think, you know, it's just such a tremendous... The amount of work he's put into this. Could He, he could easily have just have just chucked this out. Just he could that script, he, yeah, made it half the size. Absolutely. He could easily have done that. And I think uh, as children, we we were probably have been happy with that. We've, we've got the story. It's uh, mm. But isn't it wonderful to come back to this... Um, and realise that you're 
you actually, you know, there was actually an awful lot of love and care invested yeah. in those childhood books. Absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. I'd completely forgotten and it's a wonderful discovery. It's, it's a treasure of something. And what, what I thought um, as well was about, you, you were saying the words like pugilist and... Um, pugilist. And yeah. And in, got, in comparison to the words, so, so the doctors, as I say old-fashioned noble he's got his guard up he's you know he's he's playing by the rules and and then the counterpoint to that are the descriptions of Steyer yes who's described as a steam hammer and delivering a pile driver yeah so he's, he's sort of mechanical and beastly and automated and and all the rest of it and and the doctors sort of um using footwork and dodging yeah. blows and and being incredibly fair about or at least you think he's being incredibly fair about the whole encounter even though what he's actually doing is wearing Steyer out and it's part of his bigger plan yes yes yeah, yeah it is well you get all of that you get all of that in that that inner narrative yeah in this book that you just don't get on the telly you or do. in many, many many other target books yeah, yeah. You know, you know what the doctors think. You know what Steyer's thinking. You, you, you sort of make that connection in a way that you just don't, as I say, on on the telly or or perhaps in books from lesser authors. Yes. Yeah. I I think it it's really is quite, um, quite an intense book in many ways. Um, I I I found, for example, well we'll move on. I when if you by the um the new audio one from the bbc you've got you got a nice little booklet in it which gives a little bit of background and i'm just looking at that now and it says that um this is um Iamata's second target novelization and it says he took it because no one else wanted to do it because it was only really? two episodes long that's right but it says here he expands almost every element to create a rich and compelling tale of the Galsec colonists' struggle against the Santara military assessor Steyer, and that's mm. what he does. He expands it. You see, you've got these colon yeah. these colonists in there. You've got um, all this. The, what do you think of the the torture scenes? The way he's testing these people. I there was um. There was a brilliant bit, actually. There's one of the spacemen is a traitor, isn't he? Is yes, it? the captain. Is, that, is it the captain? Bureau? Bureau? Yes, is I it? think and, it is. Yeah. And um, he, he says to Star, he says, when when Star is getting ready to start the torment, he says, but not me, not me. Yes. Uh, and and Star sort of has a beat and he thinks about, about this. And then he says, uh, that was a simple experiment to test your gullibility oh, and you think you're swine yeah you know yeah. <laughs> no. yeah he sold his friends out and 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 it's all backfired really rather badly on him yes and i suppose it's a try the fact that they try to as you know he is the subject of the chest crushing yes incident. and al although they they swear if they ever get out of it alive to pulverize him they actually do try their best to save him, don't they? They do. And I think he atones for for his um, wrongdoing anyway by 
um, sacrificing himself so that the doctor gets out of a tight spot towards the end. So yeah, there is yeah. redemption for that for that character. But yes, the the torture scenes, and I'm particularly thinking not only um, the bit at the end where where that struggle's going on, but also Styer's hallucination-inducing machine as well. No, this, that's yeah. great. Expanded, isn't it? That the, is, yeah. You know, it, I think on the telly, and I haven't watched this for years, but I think the nightmares are just very simply overlaid on on the picture. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As you really go through it, I think, with Sarah. Oh, and it's all it's down incredible. to the strength of the writing. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I'm uh, at the beginning of the podcast, and the listeners will have heard... Um, uh, John Calshaw reading the part with Sarah where she's in the hallucination machine mm. and she's on the um, she's it's, it's like a the desert scene. She's imagined she's on the mm. desert and it, the way he describes her skin blackening and cracking open and her, it's incredibly horrific, isn't it? Mm, it it is. It it leaves nothing to the imagination. No, no, it, it's uh, incredible. For certain and um i i must admit i got quite confused by one aspect of the story but i think i've worked it out right go ahead sometime in the first third of the story somewhere on disc one i think yeah um the doctor is being lowered down uh i suppose it's a crevasse i don't know what it is but he's been lowered down on his scarf and yeah. I think the people lowering him have to let go all of a sudden and he goes crashing down. Oh, yes. And, and hits his head and he has this amazing nightmare. And I, I thought at first he'd fallen victim to the hallucination machine, but I think it was genuinely was just, just a blow to the head that, that uh, induced those visions in him. And uh, yeah, that's I mean, actually a brilliant scene as well. Yes. The way that's written. And, um, he describe. I think he describes the TARDIS. Is, is it being swallowed in in some sort of galactic storm or? Black? Yes, that's he right. He describes it as a cork in a typhoon. Yeah, <laughs> which I think is wonderful. It's fabulous. It really gives you that image of, of I don't know, like a ship in a whirlpool or something. You know, it's it's great, isn't it? And the other thing that I absolutely must praise Ian Martyr for before we move on. Yeah. It's for managing to shoehorn a Shakespearean reference into the text. Go which ahead. I don't know if you spotted it. Um, I haven't. I haven't. You... During the Doctor's dream, and the Doctor dreams about rats overrunning the TARDIS console. Yes. He is saved by a black cat, isn't he? Yes. And the blade, the, that, that cat is called Grey Malkin. Macbeth. Yes, ah. absolutely. Right, I come, I... I come Grey Malkin. Oh. It's, it's the witch's familiar. Yes, the witch's. This idea that evil spirits come to the witches in animal form. There's a the second witch has a toad. Yeah, uh, I don't remember the name of the second. No. Uh, the second witch is familiar, but Grey Paddock. Malkin. Paddock calls, is it? Is it? Paddock. Yeah. Of course, it's Paddock. And um, I, I just, I thought. Respect to Ian Martyr yeah. for, for referencing Shakespeare within that nightmare scene. But, of course, the witch 
summons Grey Malkin because the 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 Grey Malkin is the witch's familiar. He's the vessel through which he does bad things. Yes. Whereas the doctor, in comparison, sort of shoes Grey Grey Malkin away. He pushes the cat away. Oh, you've. Uh... So, yeah. so he's still on the side of the angels, even when he's dreaming. Oh, you've you've put some thought into this, David. I, I did. This I is. I, I, uh... I was just so. I was just so delighted. Yeah. That yeah. Ian Martin had got this Shakespearean reference in. Yeah. Yeah. And of cause... course, the witches. The idea, the witches familiar. I think last season, there was an episode. Of course, yes. With, Second episode. Um, it's a sort of like the witch's helper, the witch's conduit to do evil. Yes, yeah, yeah, because there was a lot of um, going back to that episode where that was featuring Davros and uh, and um, Missy. There was a lot of people uh, they they couldn't find out what the titles referred to. Was they, right, they, they I were, understood what the title referred to, but I didn't understand who it referred to. Yes. Um, so what, what's what's your bad. interpretation? Could you give it to us? I haven't really thought that through, if I'm honest. Oh, I right, yeah. suppose I suppose that uh, Dav the evil of Davros is manifested through his Dalek creations, but I suppose um, I, I truly don't know. Yeah, I, yeah. It was it, it was a bit of a... It was settled upon because it sounded mysterious. Yeah, yeah. Because it was is it was the witch's familiar and um, the sorcerer's apprentice, wasn't it? So sorcerer's we... apprentice. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Which, of course, is that famous um disney fantasia yes yeah so stephen moffat is actually i suppose yes i suppose that's that's um that's a reference to something going out of control i seem to that very famous disney sequence where mickey mouse automates the washing up or something or the sweeping or the brooms yeah it's all just it's all just fantasy it's yeah all just fantasy yeah yeah but, cle but clearly Stephen moffat is copying ian martyr all these years later in, in putting in some uh... i don't know if it's copying him but <laughs> let's, let's say he's paying an affectionate tribute to him oh very very diplomatically put there. Very, very well done um no it, it really is you know the depth of the writing here you know that the, the descriptions are so fabulously wide-ranging and diverse that um i was quite struck by by the, this novelization you know a huge amount of work and i i thought somebody bearing in mind that as as we've been told in the booklet that uh, nobody else wanted to do it i mean the, the guy's imagination must have been bursting to get at this to to, to conjure all this out i suppose to yes to to yes to squeeze all of that additional good material out of really bare bones storyline yeah it's good and i think the real strength and i'm sure we will come to this but one of the real reasons to own this audiobook is the reader oh. john do you want to give me your impressions of John Coleshaw's reading? Well, I hope I didn't talk over you just then, because you introduced it um, beautifully then, David. Um, I've got in my notes here, I'll just say, John Coleshaw, he does, the, he's reading the novelisation, but he's also acting out and impersonating Tom Baker, and he's also doing Steyer, and uh, the, now he is, I think he's utterly phenomenal. I think it's... What, what do you think, David? I can't disagree with you, Greg. 
I really cannot disagree with that. Oh, I think he's an excellent Peter. He, he, all of his characters are really, really good. Obviously, as the Doctor, he excels because yeah. impersonating Tom Baker is, is one of his stock characters. Yeah. But he's also very, very good, as you've mentioned, Steyer, and he is very good at Steyer. He is. He's yeah. also very good at doing Harry as well. Oh, the he's... Harry is, the Harry is spot on. Well, when he... You're absolutely right. I mean, when the, the, the part you mentioned about um, Humpty Dumpty, you know, and when he says, he's in Harry's voice saying, the Humpty Dumpty fella, it, yeah. it's him to a T. It, it's absolutely perfect. Uh, it's, yes, absolutely, it is. Oh, and, and Steyer, you know you were describing about, you know, the, the oily breath, because he, he's got... Oh, yes, he, 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 yes, he snorts black smoke doesn't he at one he, point yeah he's ghastly he is he's ghastly he's ghastly and he's um focused i suppose and dedicated but yeah. he's he's also slightly bad in that he uh the sontaran to whom he's reporting and it isn't the same one as the story the field marshal no no he wants to get on with things because I think in the context of this story, the sometimes might be after the Terillium. Yes. Yeah. They might be after, oh, well, that's one of the Doctor's theories anyway. Yes. Yeah. And Steyer, you, you, you get the feeling, you really get the feeling, and, and a lot of this is down to the way John Coleshaw plays him, that Steyer's just having so much fun torturing people. Yeah. Doesn't want to make that report. <laughs> that, that's absolutely it, doesn't it? The, it does come across it in John Culture's interpretation, doesn't it? It's uh, and it's beautifully done. And, um, yeah, and he sounds so close to the original actor. The original actor was actually an Australian. That Cam was Kevin, Kevin Lindsay. Kevin Lindsay, yes, yes. He was also a man at the Spiders, yeah, as well yeah. around this time. But um, obviously, uh, quite a, quite short in stature, the original Sontara and Lynx, and then he came back to play Steyer. And yeah. John Coleshaw does an excellent interpretation, and it's and it and it does. It's very easy to visualise the the televised character when you listen to him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's be it's just so beautifully done. I I can't I, I'm just so impressed by John Culture doing it. Um, one of the other things that I hadn't actually realised until I went back and had a look, but he actually decides to make all the spacemen South African. He does, which yeah. I think is a masterstroke. Yeah, yeah. Because you know who they are, and they they are. I mean, I don't want to offend any South African listeners, but they. It's a sort of good shorthand for sort of, I don't know, survivors, uncultured, yeah. rugged yeah, yeah. people. Yeah, and yeah. Um, Glyn Jones, who played one of the spacemen on the, the TV, I'll just quickly see which one he played. He played Kranz. Yes. Uh, he, in Doctor Who terms, was also famous for writing the Space Museum, but he was actually South African. Yeah. And I never realised that until John Coleshaw did that voice for him. Yes, yeah, it's quite interesting. It's, it's, it's a fabulous idea and it's it shows the amount of effort he's put in there because one little um, complaint I had with Jeffrey Beavers, well, not, not against Jeffrey Beavers, but um, 
he did um, State of Decay recently, which was released, and he does a beautiful job of of the narration. But I I did feel that when it came to the sort of um, the the locals, the 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 less intellectual sort of village locals, he gives them this stock um, Cornish dull accent, and I and I find I. F- feel that I find it a little bit insulting especially um sort of uh feeling you know it's all it's always it's always that it's it's not I don't like when you just give a stock character like that you know because it's not right to associate an accent with a particular thing you know I mean Stephen Moffat when when I saw him last year when he was actually at the um the um, what was it called? You know, the witch's familiar. You know, the, yeah. the day. But I went to that when they they did that in Cardiff, and he, he oh. and Jenna and Peter Capaldi were there, and they gave a, a good little chat. You know, and um, you know, he he alluded uh, to this sort of thing. You know, because because somebody pointed out with the Santara. No, you mentioned earlier. Um, yes, yes, Strax, and because somebody complained saying, but I can tell that he's got a Welsh accent because I, I believe I think it's a Welsh actor who plays him I think I'm not is it but plays him. yeah yeah and and fabulously and um Stephen Moffat said well so why didn't you complain before when all the Centaurans spoke in a Cockney accent and I thought that was quite <laughs> it was they quite did invasion of time didn't they they did didn't they yeah they did and I thought that was a nice little uh, sort of rebuttal from 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 Stephen Moffat there, but but it's like you I said, you know, I don't like it when you. I mean, the two Ronnies used to do. Everybody has always done it. They give this West Country accent, and immediately someone is, is shorthand for lack of intellect. Exactly, exactly, and I just feel in this day and age, and it is. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no real need for that, really. I don't think you know, and and look. Look what he's yeah. done here. Look what he's done here. It's fabulous. He's managed to make each of the characters sound different, but whole, but sound as a unit because they all seem to have the same vocal origin. Yeah, that's... Like you can tell that it's different people speaking. Yeah, yeah. Every time, can't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. He gives them different voices, but they are, like you say, the same vocal origin yeah yeah i'll tell you something else that i was um inclined to discover having listened to john colshaw yeah because i thought that his accent well first his accent struck me as being slightly as if he could be from manchester actually and uh, i looked it up and apparently he's from lancashire which isn't that far away all right yeah and i used to have an english teacher from manchester right and he used to have the same sort of vocal attack as john colshaw has when he says he says words like gas grasp mask bass yeah. And it was like oh, it was it absolutely resonated so much with the most inspirational teacher I ever had. Wow. I think that was another 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 thing that that attracted me to the way John Colshaw read this book because he doesn't do a sort of received pronunciation. You can tell that he's using his original regional accent, which just happens to be from Lancashire. Yes, yeah. I really liked 
the I really liked that. I I really I uh, really connected with it. Yeah, um, yeah. Of course, the around that these huge sort of vocal variations as he does near spot on impressions of very key people in the in the cast. He has, as we've said, uh, a brand for the spacemen himself. Yeah. In fact, even his Sarah Jane is pretty good. I was about pretty, to say pretty realistic. Yeah, even his Sarah Jane. Distinct. Yeah, it, it is. He he's got he's got the feel of Sarah Jane, hasn't he? He can't you know he can't emulate the actual sound of the woman's voice, but, but um, yeah, it's much it's much um, it's it's much better than than suddenly going up several registers and attempting a high pitched voice. It's 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 just so much cleverer. Yeah, than that. His, yeah. his delivery of all characters. Yeah. Say his his avoidance of stereotyping, and yet being able to have this distinctive sound to to similar groups of people. Oh, I'm which so... is fantastic. I, this is the first time I've heard this man read a book. Right. And I'm sad I didn't do Death to the Daleks because I'm pretty sure that he also does a John Pertwee impression as oh, well. Oh, he does a fabulous. I'm sorry you were. You weren't. You were, oh, you weren't with us for that one, were you? Well, uh, that, that actually, I actually tweeted John Kelshaw because that one of the Genesis, um, sorry, not Genesis, the Deaths of the Daleks, even though it was only released um, a few months ago, has quickly on iTunes become our most popular right. download. And really? uh, yeah, yeah, it's gone straight to the top, and um, that's that's absolutely fabulous. I didn't know Maybe if. Tweet him about this podcast as well, and let him know that we say gushingly encouraging things. Oh, I hope reading, but they are sincere. I do oh, mean, and me too, absolutely. <laughs> I actually, David, I'm so glad that you are enthusing so much about him as a because I I listened to it again today. It's wow. quite it's quite interesting because you you told me you listened to it several times, and I thought, oh, I've got. But I just wanted to listen to it again today. You know, I had things to do around the house and I put it on on the speaker and uh, it was just fab. I was getting so absorbed by it. Um, you know, the combination, I think, of, of the, the fabulous writing from Ian Marta and John Calshaw's acting and, and sound work on this are fab. But I did want to ask you, because I know not only are you very much interested in, in language, but the technical presentation of this right. what, what do you feel well, well i it has to i was not aware of the technical presentation this time ah. which must mean that it either wasn't there or was wholly appropriate and i suspect that there was technical presentation there because there were music breaks to um highlight particular moments of the story and there were sound effects i think particularly i think the the um the machine that captures the spacemen i think that had um, yeah. sound effects. but it was obviously very very measured yeah. and appropriate because it supplemented complemented whatever you wanted to say it, it seemed in keeping it didn't swamp the reading it didn't distract from the language no and no. it's taken a few a few tries for me to feel that way because as you know i was quite critical of the invasion yes the way yeah. every sound in there was done to death 
yeah and was twice as loud as the previous one <laughs> so yes i would i would say that they pitched this one just right in yeah, terms yeah. of how they augment the reading with sound effects yeah that that's it is i love the word you've used that it's it's augmented isn't it rather than Com distract rather than rather than all encompassing and and as you say distracting yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's, absolutely. oh that's brilliant uh, a couple more thing we've got a few more mm. minutes to to, okay. to talk about i was i wanted to ask you I mean, we, we're enthusing a lot about the writing, what's mm. been done with it, the, the, mm. the presentation. What about the actual story? How do you feel that? Because it is quite a sparse, sparse, <laughs> sorry, sparse oh, yes. story, yeah. isn't it? What, what do you feel, David? Well, obviously the television story needs to be discharged in less than 50 minutes. So, So there is... There are constraints on that, but um, I think, yes, I, I think the story is a good story. It's, it, as you say, it's there's not a lot to it. It's evil alien lures spacemen onto planet, tortures them a bit. The Doctor basically puts things to rights and leaves again. But that structure isn't uncommon in Doctor Who. It happens. It happens a lot. Um, that particular plot line. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. um, yes. I, I suppose there are so few plots out there as well. That doesn't help in terms of making something staggeringly original. But what I would say, it's it's understandable. It's clear. You know exactly who the goodies, who the baddies are. I like a degree of certainty when I'm watching something. I, I like to understand what's going on, which is a criticism that I would often level at uh, New Who that I simply don't understand. Yeah. What's going on? Funny enough, people a lot younger than myself seem to, but I don't. Yeah, yeah, it's this certainly. So, but, so yeah. yes, it's it's a good, it's a good straightforward adventure in which good triumphs and evil is ultimately vanquished. Yes. It's good straightforward stuff. Yeah, and yeah. Quite an early one from the writers, I would imagine. So, they haven't quite. Um, being absorbed by the Doctor Who universe yet, but uh, I'm aware that they wrote Claws of Axos, Bob Baker and Dave Martin. Yeah. It's sort of equidistant between doing that and creating canine, isn't it? Oh, yeah, huge difference, a huge difference. Yeah, eh? Huge, huge sort of journey that their writing goes yeah. throughout. So they're about two years away from Invisible Enemy at this time. But yes, it's just a good, solid science fiction yarn. Yeah, and, and everything is resolved satisfactorily. I, I, and I think that's I think that is a strength in itself, actually. Yeah, yeah. As a story, it's straightforward. It's quite simple. We we know what's going on. There's not a huge. I mean, there's no real subplot in that going on here. Is it? It's straightforward. No, there's yeah. there's the betrayal thing. Yes. Yeah. A bit of a bit of a bit of. Um, a bit of that amongst the spacemen but there's no there's no sort of counter theme no no at all i was going to say um that i uh, bob baker and dave martin actually did a very good job of taking um Ro uh, robert holmes's character who mm. of the suntarans who he invented 
and mm. being faithful to them. But looking at the credits here, I just realised that the script editor was Robert Holmes. So it was Robert Holmes. It yeah. was Rob. Yeah. So probably he made sure that his characters were faithfully <laughs> uh, <laughs> kept. Respect. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I just got to get a couple of the other notes I mentioned. Yes, I've well. written down. Um, I just want to say that I absolutely adore. Again, it's it's Ian Martyr's writing. He describes the robot, you know, it's a a metal robot. It's Mm. long um, uh, feeling things for grabbing people and so forth as tentacles, which is Mm. great, isn't it? You know, he's, Mm. um, oh gosh, what's the word when when you give... Uh, you know, animal. It's an anthropomorphism. Anthrop- yeah, anthropomorphic. Yes, yes. Do, is that are we right or am I doing it wrong? No. Oh, anthropomorphic yeah. means um, animal imitating human, doesn't it? Yes. Anthropomorphic yeah. is is what Disney is basically built on. So what? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Animals, so so what's he doing? Dog- what's he doing here? Given. An inanimate object, a robot. Well, giving that robot, I mean, that robot has a huge capacity to, to disappoint on the telly. Yeah. Because yeah. you you get the feeling that his that that the its movement is actually fairly limited, and any spaceman yeah. worth his salt could probably outrun the thing. Yeah. But yeah. because because of this wonderful description that you've hit upon about these tentacles, yeah, it doesn't have to chase you. It can just throw out a tentacle and get you. Yes, and that's why it's dangerous. It, it, you know, to to encounter it, yeah, is is pretty bad news, isn't it? It and is. It does yeah. it does do Star's bidding, and it is it is just um, his servant. It doesn't really think. It it just does. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it it does have a lot of menace about it in the book, which it simply doesn't have on the telly. It's quite cute on the telly, isn't it? It's quite cute in a way. I think it's. it's a well yeah that's true that's true yeah yeah is it old thing oh that's right yeah which is which of course i think it's his first use of the phrase old thing oh is it really because they say that's perfect tom baker he actually it actually i remember i don't know how he does it but he actually gets it to sort of collapse in on itself and yes and and deactivates itself it's deactivates the robot on telly that's right yeah i think i think that the as a menace, I think it's a lot more credible. Yeah, yeah. Which, of course, is is, is easier to do with the huge budget that Yamat has got um, in, in this. Well, but, yes, I'm sure it would yeah. be CGI. Yes. Carrying threat. Yes. The two other little things I mm. just want to get in quickly was um, talking of the Doctor. Um, you mentioned the Terillium discs, and he, he uses the the coloured sections of his scarf to measure the distance between them to work um, a problem out. And I love when right. Target Books used to do things because that is so doctorish, but it's also such so clever, isn't it? It's like boys' own stuff. I, lo- I love that. It's, you know? Yes, it's, there's, a, there's definitely a degree of um, problem solving. And what's the, what's, what's the word? Improvisation. That's it. That you don't get it on the telly anymore because everything is resolved by the sonic screwdriver. Yes. And the, reali- the reason that happens is because everything has to be discharged within 45 minutes. Yeah, which is such very, a Very, very handy. But this is a problem solving, intuitive, thinking, benign doctor at work here. Yeah. 
That's a really good description. And that's what I like. I loved we've, that as a child. We, we've lost all of that. Yeah. There's just no time to develop a story. And I'm not saying that the two-parters don't work wonderfully in New Who, because there was one last year that I thought was magnificent when, um, I can't tell you the, the title of it, because I only ever watched them once, yeah. but I can tell you that Paul Kay was playing a, an alien undertaker in it. Oh, you remember yes. the one I'm talking about? Yes, I do. That was kind of old school Doctor Who, and yes. I was so pleased to see that something was actually taking the time to set out a longer story. But yeah, um, yeah you're right. It was, it was very quite much an exception. It was yeah, a lovely was. story that actually was. I can't remember the the name of. It was like a base under siege, which it it, it and then we had the Undertaker, wasn't it? It was. Uh, it was. It was. But I remember Paul K played played him. Yeah, um, it was it was lovely, really really good story. But that, that was that was so old fashioned in its development. Yeah, I I love that. And uh, well, talking of old fashioned, there is one little. It's not it's not a criticism, but um, Ian Marta gives a description of the Doctor where where he the Doctor says he's looking for his liquid crystal instant recall diary. And mm. I thought, oh dear, you know, that that's a problem. It was probably incredibly new at the time, but now it just makes you think of, uh, oh, well, I don't know, of, a, of, a, of an iPad or something, I suppose. I think a, a Kindle is liquid crystal. A, ki- a Kindle, yes, liquid yeah. crystal. But it You're seemed, right. yeah. It seemed... By the way, the story that we were struggling for was Under the Lake and Before the Flood. Oh, you know. Sorry I distracted you, yes. The no. liquid crystal diary. And really, the doctor was old school, and he used to take notes, or at least you you were led to believe that he took notes anyway. Yeah, because he had a five hundred year diary. He does obviously make a set of notes after the Time Warrior. Yes, he says that he could look up and see exactly where the Sontarans went wrong. Now that could just be bluff, you know. He yeah. might not really have that, or he he might actually have something to back that yeah yeah because of course in genesis of the daleks and under threat of of torture he is able to recite all the he does yes this, he yeah. certainly does know so, i've forgotten about that scene that's one of the most famous scenes in doctor who yeah yeah so we he, must get that tape it is vital do you understand vital brother oh, he, he stresses it what, so do, do you know even when you said it then i thought of it and a shiver went through me well it, i i I, I'm not saying I'm quoting it verbatim, but I do remember that it was powerful stuff. Yeah, absolutely, and fabulous stuff. Is our top priority. Oh. And I think I think one of the reasons is because that came out on a BBC record. Oh. I don't know if anyone remembers Long Players, but we didn't have videos. Oh, <laughs> I, no, there was that, re- we that had LP. We watered-down version of Genesis of the Daleks on two sides of vinyl. But it was distilled onto those two sides of vinyl oh, so beautifully. Well, how long does a long player last? 35 minutes, if you're lucky? Maximum, isn't it? 17 yeah. and a half minutes aside. Yeah. So some, it was some job condensing yeah. two and a half hours of television down to that. Oh, but they did. They did manage to, they did manage to pass all the key points, didn't oh, they? Oh, it's beautiful. If anybody can get hold of that... Um, they released it on CD not so long ago. Oh well, then I the BBC classics. Right. Well, I recommend right. they, that they absolutely did. It's it's out there. Oh, 
I played that over and over again. It's so good. <laughs> it's so fabulous. And of course, Tom Baker does narration for it, doesn't he? Which isn't in the. Uh, I'm sure he does. Doesn't he do narration? Right. Not 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 a huge I amount, but sort of. That. I, I know he does some narration on Doctor Who and the Pescatons from yeah. 1966. Yeah, I got a feeling he just recorded only small bits to sort of fill in the the, the, the gaps. You sounds know. good. Yeah, yeah. I but... should and that's, uh, I'm going to have to say, I I think we, well, I, we could actually talk about it for hours, but we've got to limit ourselves, <laughs> unfortunately. Mm. But I, I'm just going to go in say, to say it. I, I'm giving this a, a score. I don't know why we have to score things, but... We have it, to score. We have to. It's, it's 10 out of 10 for me. David? Right. Okay. No, no, I've gone very silent. You've given it a 10. I've given it a 10 because... You know, I, I hold back from giving anything a 10. Oh. I'll tell you for why. Right. Because there'd never be... It's going to be the search for the elusive 10 that keeps me listening. But That's... if any audio deserves a 10, yeah, then it's this one. So I'm going to break my own rules and utterly agree with you. Oh, this wow. audio is absolutely fantastic. And it's not a big investment of time to listen to it. It runs across three discs. You'll yeah. be thoroughly entertained. And it just absolutely captures the magic of 70s Doctor Who. And a lot of that is down to John Coleshaw's excellent reading. So, yes, I will go 10. And what a fabulous ending you've given there, David, to, to the podcast. That is absolutely great. And I'm feeling a, I'm feeling a little bit... Um, Oh, I'm wondering now, will will we ever get another one as good as this? I'm, I'm Only wondering. if John Coleshaw reads another one. Oh, I'm going to I'm going to tweet John Definitely Coleshaw. Definitely tweet him and suggest that he does so. Absolutely. There must be loads of stories he could read still. There's got to be, there's got <laughs> to be. What one are you going to join us for next? Well, I believe that we'll be doing The Curse of Fenric and also that you have a very special guest lined up for that podcast oh thank you we do we have una mccormick who has written several very um excellent doctor who novels and is also on the times bestseller list for her star trek novelizations and she's going to be joining us for the curse of fenric but she's chosen herself it's one she she's very very fond of and uh and wants to get that is it one that you're you're very fun it's certainly one that I remember and I shall I shall listen to that one and I shall give you my thoughts in a couple of weeks fabulous fabulous take care David thank you so much thank you very much indeed Greg pleasure talking to you as ever please tweet us at Doctor Who on Target that's DR Who on Target or email us at Doctor Who on Target at gmail.com that's the end of this episode and I would like to thank BBC Audio and Penguin Random House for kindly supplying us with preview copies and to Smerin's Antisocial Club for the use of their version of the Doctor Who theme tune. The biggest thank you goes to you, our listeners.